My name is Ellen Earhart, and you're listening to Plant Crimes, a nonfiction podcast about transgressions committed against, by, and because of the most ordinary, yet remarkable, life forms on our planet. Since this is the first episode of the first season, I wanted to warn y'all, this is not a podcast for the wilted of heart. Together, we'll track down plant thieves and destroy electric guitars. We'll talk about Miley Cyrus and someone who the Spanish media dubbed Plant Jesus. And while those parts are mostly pretty fun, we'll stare down legitimately terrifying and serious monsters, like climate change and botanical imperialism. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Our first story begins in 1987. A German college student named Eberhard Fischer was exploring the Albertine Rift in Rwanda. It's a forested, mountainous area with lots of known animal diversity, from mountain gorillas to 32 native amphibian species. Fisher's car broke down, and he spent the next few days camping at a hot spring. He found and harvested a plant. It turned out to be the smallest water lily species ever found on this planet by Western scientists. A year later, it got the name Nymphaeithermerum. Its leaves are only one centimeter across, and it has very small white flowers with yellow stamens. In other words, it's adorable. Fisher found this tiny, perfect water lily at the base of a limestone quarry, only a few miles away from a cement factory. Fisher painstakingly searched a huge area for Nymphaeithermerum, but he didn't find it anywhere else. Overuse caused the hot spring to dry up, putting Nymphaeithermerum in jeopardy. With only one super specific and apparent location, everyone expected the lily to go extinct. But luckily, this guy was paying attention. Well, my name is Carlos Magdalena, and I work in the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. Carlos Magdalena was determined not to let Nymphaeithermerum become another casualty. He's the resident plant savior at Kew Gardens. He's an expert at finding out what an endangered plant needs to grow and thrive. He travels around the world as a botanical consultant. With his long hair and charisma, some journalists call him the plant Jesus. And he wrote a book called The Plant Messiah. After Fisher found the water lily, he took it to two botanical gardens in his home country. German botanists quickly found that the plant grew quite happily in cooler waters and would even produce seeds that germinated. But after that came disaster. Even though they had sprouted, the young plants kept dying before they reached maturity. With that horticultural knowledge gap, the future of the species was in dire straits. When one of the German botanical gardens emailed Q to ask for some rare plants, Magdalena saw his opportunity to get some Nymphaeithermerum specimens. He received some seeds and began an odyssey to figure out how to make the plants grow and thrive. In 2014, he finally had 24 Nymphaeithermerum plants that Q could put on display. And on the morning of Monday, January 13th, one went missing. Kew Gardens is massive. According to its website, it's the largest and most diverse botanical and mycological collection in the world. I would believe that. When I visited, I was overwhelmed by the 27,000 living plants and actually failed to meet up with my boyfriend during my visit because we could not find each other. He ended up meeting me back at our lodgings. In the heart of Kew, there's a huge glass building called the Princess of Wales Conservatory. It has 10 climate-controlled rooms. So wandering around in there feels like traveling through the entire world. Three horticulturalists and two aquarium experts look after the building, along with many students and apprentices. 
like Duncan Brokenshaw, the person who discovered the hole in the dirt where the plant used to be. That's according to journalist Sam Knight, who wrote a long-form piece for The Guardian on this story. We'll hear from him in a minute. A lot of the time, Q staff members put the plants that have the most monetary value, like rare orchids and cacti, behind a glass wall. But they had actually made the decision to put the water lilies out in the open. But while the Nymphaeus Romerum were protected by a barrier, they were inconvenient to get to. Here's Sam Knight. He's written many stories about the UK and British politics, including one of my favorite pieces ever, which is about what will happen when Queen Elizabeth dies. He's now a staff writer at The New Yorker. There was a sort of walkway banning the edge of this pond, and then the nymphaea were planted out on this muddy bank. But you had to really scramble down, and there was a sort of a railway sleeper. There was a bank of other vegetation. You really needed to know what you were looking for, and then to take a bit of a risk, scramble down there when it, when everyone was watching. And I think at the time when the plant was taken, it was January, so it wasn't flowering. It would have been like little n- nubs of green in the mud. You really did have to sort of know what you were looking for. The supervisor of the Princess of Wales Conservatory called the Metropolitan Police Department. Two officers arrived at Kew and began a full forensic investigation, crawling around in the dirt with magnifying glasses. Magdalena says they didn't find much. He says it felt like living in a golden era mystery novel. And it sounds a little bit of a kind of Agatha Christie's, isn't it? Uh, I remember the, the Metropolitan Police coming here and then getting the magnifying glass out and then all the forensic team, because even though it was just somebody taking a plant, it was a crime. And all they found was a head of a mouse uh, stuck into one of the wooden boards which were next to the plant. So they look at it very carefully. With almost no evidence, the police soon closed the case. The thief was never discovered, but those closest to the story have a few guesses. Maybe the person that stole it didn't realize the impact this thing was going to have. He may thought that it was going to annoy maybe a couple of gardeners in queue, and the thing will stay there. But suddenly the whole planet went talking about this for a couple of weekends. On the other hand, the plant burglar had to know enough to shimmy along the neighboring exit and reach over the mud in order to scoop up one of the plants, said Knight. The lilies weren't flowering and are pretty small and normal looking, kind of like a cabbage. The thief did all this while another Q staffer was working at a pond only a few feet away. It was a daring crime and Knight doesn't think a novice could have pulled it off. At the time in the news reports, people got into this idea that it was priceless, right? When I spoke to the water lily collecting community, which it seems pretty small to me, top dollar the most that anyone was ever selling water lily seeds for was like 50 pounds, which I guess at the time was about sort of $75. So the group of people that if someone was doing this as a theft in order to try and produce the plant commercially and make some money out of it, we're not talking crazy money here, right? When I was talking to these Water lily collectors and hybridizers, their passion was to make their own water lilies and make unusual hybrids and potter about in their greenhouses. A lot of them were quite resentful towards Q because they felt like they were hoarding their collection or not sharing samples in a nice way. But on the other hand, it's pretty extreme to hop down there one day and and steal something. I got the feeling that people in the water lily scene, a few of them might be very, very quietly cheering on whoever did this and kind of hoping that the nymphaea 
would come on their radar one day and they wouldn't mind taking a crack at growing it in their greenhouses. But on the other hand, I didn't come across with anyone who seemed like the, the chops to actually pull it off. Knight says that after some reporting, a suspect began to emerge. I was very struck by talking to one of the curators at Kew who'd overseen the planting of the nymphae, and he'd, just a few weeks before it was taken, he had apprehended someone else in the greenhouse, helping themselves to some plants, including another rare species. And he was like a French guy who said he was going to make some cuttings and sell them on the internet. He seemed like an opportunistic thief. I wonder whether it falls more into that category as someone with a bit of knowledge, but not a crazed fanatic, just having a go. In order to get to the root of the problem and maybe find Knight's French guy, I decided to do a little digging myself. Pun intended. You can just assume going forward, all the bad puns are fully intended. I'm a professional journalist with sophisticated investigative skills, so I googled Nymphae Thermarum for sale. To my surprise, someone had posted an Nymphae Thermarum on the website Koifin, which is devoted to the discussion of koi ponds. The post is from August 14, 2018, and geotagged Wanakee, Wisconsin. The poster wrote that he got it from a member of the International Water Lily and Water Gardening Society, who gave him the seeds as a gift. He said he checked with Magdalena about owning the seeds, and then Magdalena said it was fine as long as he did not try and sell them. I checked the story with Magdalena, who says it's impossible to know if someone has a certain species without being able to see it. This complicated chain of custody leaves room for questions and kind of supports Knight's hypothesis that people within the water lily community had been waiting to get their hands on Nymphae Thermarum. The media attention from this case had many consequences. Some people question what entitled Q to the plants in the first place. European botanists have a long history of taking seeds and plants from other countries without getting anyone's permission first. Back in the, the glory days, 18th and 19th century British and Western scientists setting off out into the world to discover these species and bring them back. You know, they were called thieves by the people who lived in those places. Like, you know, Joseph Hooker, the celebrated director of Kew, he was imprisoned in the Himalayas. Henry Wickham, the guy who took the rubber seeds from the Amazon, you know, is known as the Prince of Thieves in Brazilian literature. We're not applying these labels in retrospect. People recognize the people coming into places and taking species and moving them away again. People felt violated by that at the time. The problem with someone stealing the thermarum beyond the conservation concerns is that any money that anyone makes from distributing the plants from a country is supposed to go back to that country. Rwanda is supposed to get a significant cut of the capital that anyone makes from Nymphae thermarum. Those resources are supposed to help with construction projects like this one, led by Elias Bazuru, Director of Science and Innovation at the University of Rwanda. Even now we are developing a biodiversity information system for Rwanda, and through this project we intend to repatriate all the data, at least the digitized data, and we put it in a portal uh, so that everybody can access this portal wherever he is worldwide. Even though the one plant was stolen and never recovered, Magdalena already figured out how to get the plants to reproduce, germinate, and grow to maturity. After experimenting with different temperatures, pHs, salt concentrations, and light levels, he found that the secret ingredient was an infusion of carbon dioxide. And even after the theft, he had 20-something other plants and hundreds of seeds to work with. He's continued to cultivate his collection. And this particular conservation story has a happy ending. 
Recently, the situation in the lily's natural habitat in Rwanda has changed. Any remaining nymphaeith or marum stragglers will have a chance to repopulate, if it's not too late. And Magdalena is making plans to return the lilies acute to their natural habitat, though he still had to face down many logistical hassles before he can do that. The people is not any longer there, and the water is flowing back freely. So, yeah. So the good news about aquatic ecosystems is that once you remove the causes, uh, they recover quite quickly. It's not as easy with things like primary forests and things like this that require centuries of of protection to get back to the original state. With aquatic environments, it's quite quick. But that doesn't mean the Magdalena is just chilling now, waiting for the paperwork to go through. We are in the midst of an extinction event, and he is pouring time and money into a new water lily species. It has tiny seeds that miraculously grow into huge asymmetrical pads with no roots. The plant does this even though the water in its natural habitat has almost no nutrients. Magdalena is trying different experiments with pumps and aquariums in order to figure out how to save this species. We are also trying to grow something really unusual. It's a plant in the Podos de Macy family, which they call them river weeds. And those plants are very special because they come out of seeds which are like dust. And then when the dry season dries the river, they stick to the pebbles. And when the rains come back, they germinated like tiny, tiny, tiny. And then in this water, they, there is no nutrients that any kind of test can detect. But because it passes on many millions of liters per day, these plants are able to trap it. And then they grow into crazy mats with very kind of uh, strange shapes. And then when the river comes down again, they flower again, and then, then they set seeds. So they are annuals. But the problem is because this environment is so different to a glass house then nobody has managed to grow any. And the problem with this is that there is hundreds of species, and we have lost at least 70 already. The power company in charge actually did a survey to check if there were any endangered species in the area where they wanted to build their plant. But during the delay, people are left without electricity. Even though everyone in this situation tried to do the right thing, it's an overwhelming and frustrating problem. As often I've been asked for people here in Cuba and outside, if you do this, there is a dam coming, and then you grow it out of the wild, then somebody will argue that that may then provide a scapegoat for the company. But actually, in this case, it's the other way around. The company is trying to do whatever they can to stop the extinction of the plant because the, the dam is going to go ahead. And it's a very interesting philosophical debate because when you put all the facts together then it becomes really complicated like for example very a low percentage of the people which live in these countries have access to electricity this is a dam which is going to generate probably 30 or 40 percent of the electricity of the country it's going to increase the access to electricity to many people so then what you do you know you have to try to find that balance between people's needs and also conservation needs and my take is that so far we have lost already 70 species. So the inaction is not working. So I hope that out of this disaster, at least may come, it may come a spark of hope somehow. So to sum up, some idiot stole a water lily, the smallest in the world and one of the last of its kind. We'll probably never know who did it. But bigger picture... That doesn't really matter because Magdalena is still able to keep the species going for long enough to probably return it to the wild. 
That is a rare and precious conservation win. But even bigger picture, this species is only one of an unknown number of water lilies that live in specialized habitats all over the world. About a fifth of all plant species are in danger of extinction. Unless something changes quickly, we won't be able to save more than a fraction of them. In his Guardian piece on the Nymphae Thermarum theft, Knight said the plant crime is an idea whose time has not really come yet. That was in 2014. I ask if he thinks that's still true five years later. I wrote the story, I guess it's coming on for five years ago now, and the, the sense of, of crisis and mass extinction has definitely advanced quite a lot since then. I think that, I was thinking about it today, that I went round and round in my mind about this idea of taking plants from one place to another and defining that as a crime, which is very complicated when you think of the act of scientific research for hundreds of years. It's been based on going to other places, taking samples of things and removing them back to a lab or back to a garden and attempting to grow them or examine them, understand them. And that's legitimate botany. Even now, there are amazing expeditions taking place in unexplored parts of the Arctic or in deep undersea valleys looking for rare microbes or, or rare forms of plant life to see if we can find new bacteria from them or new drugs from that. Do you know what I mean? This, this act of exploration and looking for things and then moving them from A to B is integral to our understanding of the natural world. I couldn't believe when I was doing that story that on the day that it was taken in the same conservatory as it was being displayed, Q had an exhibition called Plant Hunters, all about the great early days of botany and exploration. Joseph Hooker took 7,000 species back from Asia to Q, or Q paid a guy, Henry Wickham, to get hold of rubber seeds in the Amazon and take them to Malaysia and start the British imperial rubber growing adventure. This is the way that we've moved plants around for a long time and, and not called it plant crime. And yet now at a stage where, on the one hand, it feels kind of artificial to talk about plant crime. What's the difference between taking a plant out of Kew and taking the plant out of a rainforest? It's just that one is in Kew and one is in a rainforest. Do you see what I mean? And one gets to be called a crime and one is just habitat destruction or helping yourself to something. So on the one hand, the definition of plant crime feels artificial and superimposed on the natural world in a bad way because it's a, it's a human thing. It's about possessing things and private property and, and something makes me uncomfortable about applying those labels to natural resources. But then on the other hand, it makes total sense because here we are at this terrifying moment where you can list 100 botanical species that are only alive because they're in botanical gardens. And when you steal one of those or impinge on one of those things, it really matters. And it is a crime. On the one hand, it's this questionable definition when you really want to drill into it. But then on the other hand, we are at this moment where actually our resources are so fragile that we need to call things out as crimes because they can be so damaging. I feel regularly overwhelmed by the sixth extinction event. It's hard for me to grasp how big the natural world is in terms of mammal species, like beavers and antelope and capybara, but it's even harder for me to understand how many plants there are. 
and how they're disappearing. The Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services predicts that a million plant and animal species are faced with extinction, most within a few decades. At least some people, like Magdalena, can wrangle a little hope out of this bleak situation. But only sometimes. This is the, the drama with all these things. Imagine that we fail and then we watch how this thing goes extinct and then how we get left with many thousands of seeds which we cannot grow in a freezer. So yeah, we are just trying to do whatever we can. Thank you to Brian Gutierrez, Leslie Nemo, Jill Mertensmeyer, Larissa Zimberoff, Daniela Bly, Zara Stone, Nikki Duong, John Agnew, Elena Lacey, and Serena Ajbani for being my early listeners and providing invaluable feedback. Thank you to the brilliant illustrator and video producer Nikki Duong for the art for this podcast. Also, without Nikki's friendship and constant support, this project would not exist, so thanks Nikki. Thank you to the Royal Botanic Gardens Q and to Arabella Snedden for helping me navigate. I am very excited about this project, and I need your help to get it off the ground. I much appreciate any reviews, uh, especially on Apple iTunes. They help others find me. If you like listening and want to make sure there's a season two, you can find a link to my Patreon in the show notes. Patrons will get access to juicy extras and plant stickers. Thanks for listening!